Well, welcome, you guys. Good to see you all here. Uh, I think we're going to come close to being out of the heavy theological woods after today. Because after today, we leave Gog and Magog behind, and we enter into the period of time where there's joy and peace and happiness. It's the wrapping of everything up. Revelation chapter 21 and 22. And we can then feast our eyes on a book that will come thereafter. And uh, our group may be small, but we're going to vote on what book to cover uh, hereafter. Some are saying Genesis. Uh, that's up to you guys. We'll see. Dan oh, no. No eschatological book. It cannot have any ties to eschatology. It has to be something that is about God and Jesus and faith and love, etc. Okay. Um, we're going to have a prayer. Welcome those who are here, those of you who watch at home, and uh, we'll sing the Word of God, and then we'll sit in silence and come back, and we will get into Revelation part, uh, chapter 20, part 9. Part 9. All right, let's pray. Lord, we uh, pause this beautiful uh, Sunday here in, in Salt Lake. It's, the sun is shining, and it's it's uh, pleasant weather, and we just are grateful for life, grateful for freedom, grateful to meet here and to be able to uh, go uncontested as we study your word. And we just pray that we will take advantage of that now by your spirit, uh, help the things that we're going to discuss to sink in and do some good, and uh, help us to get an overall picture of what Revelation is talking about. Help those who are struggling with the faith and struggling with the flesh and struggling with all the things that come with being human, and let us have the long-term goal with our eyes fixed upon you so that we can um, study to show ourselves approved and not study to show ourselves smart or better, but just approved. We seek to know you, Lord, and we pray for these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Show me your ways, O oh Lord. Teach me your
Okay, we, uh, we've got a group of like 80 to 100 around the world, really, who watch the Revelation uh, series, and um, they will write in and uh, send me emails or sometimes call, talk. And I came to a realization that I think is going to serve us through the remainder of Revelation, and, and it's this. Uh, you know that my personal view has been the full preterist view, and I came to that conclusion. I, I admit I may be wrong on this in the way that the historical view is that these themes repeat themselves through history, and I believe that. I think that when we see things happening during World War II, and we see things happening today that seem to be described in Revelation in, as part of the end times. I think that is very consistent, and I have no problem with that. So because I believe everything has been fulfilled, originally fulfilled for that day and time, doesn't mean I don't believe that there can be historical representations of these same things throughout the, uh, the human race and the history of, of humanity. And um, so, but I do believe that the parousia, what they call the parousia, which is Jesus coming back, and that is a word that doesn't necessarily mean a one-time event. It could have meant, could have meant he came back uh, earlier and stayed around and then, and then did everything. So I think the parousia, or what we call the second coming, did happen, which is a big one. And... Um, and this view is extremely influential, even if I see the historicist view as repeating itself, it's extremely influential on what I believe it means to be a Christian today. And so, and so I've tried to explain so far everything as it's unfolded in Revelation and to compare and contrast it with uh, futurist versus uh, full or partial preterist uh, views. And thus far it's been pretty simple. I mean, it really hasn't been difficult to show up to chapter 20, this thing has been revealed as having occurred. But admittedly, chapter 20 throws some real curveballs at us, and, and I knew this was going to be the case. Uh, there are events and teachings and doctrines that cannot be easily explained uh, relative to other parts of Scripture. Let me just step back for a minute, and then we'll get into... Uh, the verse by verse. I believe that Jesus was right, and I don't think Jesus was wrong, when he said that in his discourse on the Olivet Mount, that he, all of those things would happen within a generation. I think Jesus was right. Uh, R.C. Sproul and, and uh, Hank Hennegraaff and uh, C.S. Lewis have all had said, I, we don't know why he said that because it, it's not really correct. And uh, so they say, well, he didn't really know. I believe he knew. Uh, secondly, I think that uh, his apostles, when they wrote that he is coming back soon and quickly, I believe that they were right. I don't believe that the apostles were ever wrong uh, about their prophecies and what they would say to the people at that time. Because if we do, if they were wrong, and, and I mean, there are people, good believing Christians, who say the apostles were under the uh, impression that Jesus was coming back, and that's why they wrote that way, but they were wrong. I cannot accept that. And so I have to look at it as they were right, and maybe, maybe I am wrong in that. Maybe they could have been wrong. There are many Christians who believe they were wrong. I'm not one of them. I think they were right. The secular writers, uh, Cassius Dio and... Um, and, uh, of course, Josephus, I believe their records were right in recording what was happening at that time. And his return or parousia led to, and, and this is what Scripture teaches, that if Jesus and the apostles and all this were right, then they cannot be teased apart from the fact that he returned. This was the resurrection began the resurrection. It was the end of all things. It was the fulfillment of a millennium. It had to have been if he came back. And that Satan was cast into the lake of fire and his angels and hell cast into the lake of fire, all of that fulfilled. And that the great white throne judgment started at least to begin to take place at that time, which we're going to read about in the next couple uh, chapters. So uh, I'm forced to admit two things relative to the content of chapters 20 and 21 and 22. 
Uh, I am personally convinced that it pertained to that day. And if, it's a big if, the aforementioned things I have said occurred, then the physical resurrection in the future is impossible. That's, that's the way I'm going to state it. So while there are many, some of you at home, some of you here, uh, I've gotten your emails and some really great things, some good studies that people have given, uh, may not necessarily see it as possible to be a spiritual resurrection now. They still think that possibly we're going to have a physical resurrection. When we look at Scripture and and chronology, it's impossible for that to be. Unless somehow we're having it happen and it's materially being done without our seeing it. And, and you know, that's possible too. So, uh, but a lot of it's up to debate. The things in chapter 20, more is up to debate here in 20 than anywhere else. And that's what makes full preterism difficult. So I'm not going to debate on any of it. Uh, that being said, we're going to proceed forward with chapter 20. And I'm going to teach it from the position that I've just described And when we get to things that are debated, I'm not going to belabor like I've been doing. I'm going to continue to teach it based off what we have already laid a foundation upon. Here's the reason. If at this point in Revelation 20 we come to something that can't be completely supported by everything we've laid in the the preterist view, then we have to work backward with the new thing that isn't fully supported and reestablish it going backward through Revelation, and then we're going to go forward and back, and we're going to be in this book until we're all dead. And I can't do it. So uh, I know there are some points that are up in the air. To some, they're not up in the air. They are just, frankly, this is the way it is, and you're wrong. But I think there's, there are some points in, in Revelation that are up in the air, the paradoxical views. And one thing that led me to this was not only the emails and some uh, that I got from a few people about content of spiritual versus material resurrection, but Gog and Magog, which we're going to hit on today. Within the preterist view alone, there are like seven views, and they're so difficult to present exhaustively, that when I read them on, when I went to California to see my parents this past week, and as I was reading them, I said, you can't do it. And that's just from the full preterist view of explaining Gog and Magog. So what I'm going to do for the rest of our study, for three, two more chapters and the rest of 20, is I'm going to, if we come to a difficult one, and I think Gog and Magog is the only difficult thing that we have left that's really difficult, I'm going to present what I feel is the best view, and then if you have questions or comments on it, you can email me or bring them up live, and we can say, well, we don't know, or I don't know, and, uh, and, and go from there. So let's get to the verse by verse. We left off at verse 5, where it said, But the rest of the dead lived not again until a thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Now, at this point, I suggested that the millennium was a period of time somewhere before uh, 70 A.D. Some say it's a 40-year period. Some say it's a 1,000-year period, beginning with David and working up to the time of Christ. Up in the air, don't know. But I don't believe that the millennium is describing a literal 1,000 years, like the amillennials believe, I mean, the postmillennials believe we're in now, that this is what we're in now. I don't agree with that. I don't think we're waiting for it to happen the way the future is. I think that it has occurred, and I don't think it went out to 1096 like we discussed last week. Um, so I believe that that period of time was a period of time when Claudius was on the uh, Roman seat, and he allowed Christianity to flourish for a period of time. And there wasn't the persecution. And there was a time of peace when Satan was held back and the church was allowed to spread. I call that, and that's how I interpret, rightly or wrongly, the millennium. So verse 6, John says, Blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. 
on such the second death has no power, but they shall, those who have part in the first resurrection, be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So these are those who are being uh, martyred, probably the 144,000 who are taken up, and I believe they are called, as it says here, to be priests of God in Christ in that heavenly uh, New Jerusalem, in the heavenly temple, and they are working in and with God in Christ during that time, uh, during the, that period of peace where the gospel was allowed to spread without interruption. And when the thousand years are expired, again, thousand years interpreted one way or another, but I would say about 40, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. Now, we read about the loosing of Satan when he came, when he was, when uh, John says, uh, blessed are those who are in heaven, Satan is gone, but woe to them that are on the earth. And John goes on to say, because he comes and he knows that his time is short. And he's like a raving uh, lion. He's going about to destroy anybody. And that is when we read about Christian martyrdoms being taken, taken place. So I'd say the millennium occurred where the gospel was allowed to be shared. And then the three and a half years enter where Satan is allowed, kicked out of heaven and comes down into uh, the earth. And he's killing Christians during the time of Nero. So this was a period when many Christians were put to death as the historical record proves. A hundred thousand at least, perhaps many, many more. Uh, And they were put to death at the hands of the Romans who were encouraged by the hands of the Jews. Verse seven, and when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison, we just talked about that, and shall go out to deceive the nations, ready, which are in the four quarters of the earth. Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of them is as the sand of the sea. That's a Hebraism, unless you're a literalist. If there's the number is the sand of the sea, forget about it. We don't have an army on earth that would hold the numbers of the sand of the sea, so it's, a, it's disfigurative. The book of Revelation is symbolic. And he says there, notice, and he shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to decree. So Satan is going out to decree the nations which are the, in the four quarters of the earth. And then he tells us what they are. Gog and Magog. So they're representational. We have four corners of the earth that are nations and he is referring to them as Gog and Magog. So they are not, in my estimation, two places. They are the fulfillment of a type that was given to us in the Old Testament, Gog and Magog. And we'll talk about that in a second. But it's, read it again. Satan shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth. And then he says Gog and Magog, meaning those are the nations in the four quarters of the earth. To gather them to battle, battle who? battle against the Christians, battle against uh, Israel, battle against Jerusalem. According to verse 8, Satan during that time went out to deceive the uh, nations of the four corners of the earth, comma, Gog and Magog, and to gather them to battle. So now in the futurist mind, we know this has been talked about, uh, just like how Lindsay talked about how we're going to see this. And And just today, I mean, just this past week, people were talking about how things are happening in Israel and they're happening with the surrounding area and they're mounting and we're going to have this occur. And and that's reading the book of Revelation with a newspaper in your hand. And we've been doing it for years and the historical cycle may be there. There could be a war. All of that could happen in the historic setting, recycling over and over again. No problem. But I just don't think it's going to usher in the final uh, resurrection, because I believe that has occurred according to Jesus and his apostles. So we have to note that Gog and Magog are described here as nations that are in the four corners of the earth. That's what it says. So let's learn about Gog. What is Gog from an Old Testament perspective? First, he was a man. Gog started off as an actual dude. He was a Reubenite, according to First Chronicles 5.4, 
and he was the father of a guy named Shammai. It is also the name of a leader of the hostile party that is described in Ezekiel 38 and 39, which came from the north country and assailed the people of Israel uh, uh, in their own destruction. Now just take this. In the Old Testament in Ezekiel, we have Gog and Magog discussed. Ezekiel 38 and 39. That, I would suggest, is a picture and type that was actual in Ezekiel's day that is being appealed to by John when he says, and Satan's going to go out to the four nations, comma, Gog and Magog. He's using what Gog and Magog were about in the Old Testament in Ezekiel's day and applying it to a revisit of that now here in the New Testament day and the wrapping up of that age. Uh, the prophecy has been regarded in Ezekiel as, uh, I mean, in Revelation as a fulfillment by many, many people uh, of, of the Old Testament age relative to the conflicts that stretch out all, all over the place um, with the Maccabees and a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes who slaughtered a pig on the altar and then the invasion and overthrow of the Chaldeans. Gog and Magog are tied to the imagery of warfare against Israel. In my estimation, all of those things were pictures of the final invasions of several nations that were gathered up to wipe Israel out, which is centered in Jerusalem with their temple and their, uh, I mean, Jerusalem was, the, the, was it, taking it, wiping Israel off the map. That was the goal. And so is this happening again? Has it happened again? Maybe. But again, is it ushering in the same things? I don't think so. So this is what Revelation is talking about as the vision respecting Gog and Magog here. It's in substance a reannouncement or a reliving of the prophecy in Ezekiel 38 and 39. But while Ezekiel seems to contemplate this great conflict uh, in a more general light, and he applies it firstly to his day and what was happening there, and perhaps to John's day, that's debated. On the other hand, he describes the last struggles and victories connected with the cause of Christ. And I'm going to explain that as we go on. So, Gog is believed to be the name of a district in the uh, northeast steppes of Central Asia. North of the Hindu Kush, I'm reading this, now part of Turkestan, a region about 2,000 miles northeast of Nineveh. Because it was known as that area geographically from Old Testament geography, people think that it's that group who are going to rise up, and then other people say it's Russia, which is part of Russia, and we have all this Russian connection now because that's where Gog was in the Old Testament. Gog, then, is the region of Gog. I mean, Magog, there's Gog, and Magog is a region of Gog. And uh, it's, he's also the second of the sons of Japheth. His name was Magog, according to Genesis 10-2 and, and Chronicles 1-5. So in Ezekiel 38 and 39, it's the name of a nation, probably Scythian, Tartar tribe, descending from Japheth, himself. Okay, that's where Magog came from. It was a son of Japheth. And they are described in scripture as skilled horsemen and expert in the use of the bow. So we realize that to take Gog and Magog and what it meant in the Old Testament and literally apply it to Revelation is to say, well, we're going to have a warfare that includes horses and bows. Now, I suppose that's po possible if we, you know, we could say gunpowder's not existent anymore because the liberals made us put all our guns away in bullets, and so we didn't have them, so we had to go to warfare, with war and there's no gasoline either. So we could construe it to be a futuristic picture, but Gog and Magog, Magog was known for warriors on horseback that used bows and arrows. Ro uh, Roman, Jerome comes along, Latin, and he wrote that Magog means, quote, uh, Scythian nations, fierce and innumerable, innumerable, that's why John calls it as the sands of the sea, 
who lived beyond the Caucasus and the Lake Maotis near the Caspian Sea and spread onward to India. So this is a fairly large geographical area. So from that basic information, there spread some really fantastic ideas of what Gog and Magog are here in Revelation. And I'm going to borrow from the studies of a guy named Kurt Simmons. And of all the Gog-Magog theories out there, I think Kurt Simmons' explanation, he's a, uh, he's a fulfillment guy, I think it makes the most sense. So I'm going to borrow from that to help explain it because it's over my pay grade and I can't understand it completely. So I had to study from him. We know Revelation 20 is difficult. And so... In fact, it's from 20 that we have the names of our eschatology that have come out. See, because 20 talks about the millennium, and so from 20 in the study of 20, we have amillennialism, we have premillennialism, we have postmillennialism, and, and, and these are all uh, interpretations of what Revelation 20 is actually saying. And we can divide the body up, a billion Christians, into a number of parts based off chapter 20 alone. That's how difficult it is, you guys. So while we might disagree on the millennium, it seems pretty consistent that most Bible scholars and most groups, even in all those different millennial views, agree that the battle of Gog and Magog has or will immediately precede Christ's return. So understand that. Almost everyone sees the battle to occur immediately before his return. So if you're a futurist, you can't say Jesus is going to come back until we've had Gog and Magog and the battle of Satan leading that. If you're a, if you're a, a preterist, a full preterist, and Jesus came back in 70 AD, then you're going to have to prove that Gog and Magog somehow happened prior to 70 AD to make your eschatology work. Same with amillennialism and same with uh, postmillennialism. So Simmons points out that if preterists are going to succeed in convincing people that even chapter 20 has occurred, which is difficult, uh, then we have to have a firm command of what John means when he talks about these two words. They're really important. And he suggests that the term were symbols. Here, I'm going to give you the end, and we could probably quit, but I'm going to explain it. Were symbols that were employed to explain persecution and warfare under Nero and the Jews. That's what he says. That's what it is. That Gog and Magog were actual places in the Old Testament. We're going to read those passages in a second from Ezekiel that John uses what happened and God's view of Gog and Magog in the Old Testament to describe what's going to happen to uh, Jerusalem and Israel right before Christ comes. Remember, Revelation is to the seven churches, and the opening is he's coming quickly, and the end he's coming quickly. Read this and be prepared, and that's what that's all about. It's to s prepare them for all of this, and this is almost near the end here, and, and John is throwing it out. So Simmons, he, he begins, and he explains New Testament themes and, and prophetic method in this way, and I think it's really helpful. Are you ready? He says, when we look at the Old, Te Old Testament, we look at the Old Testament, they were always talking in their prophecies, one, about coming judgment upon Israel and Judah. They were two separate tribes, Israel and Judah, and that, that judgment would mean captivity. That's the first thing that he says the Old Testament is always talking about relative to prophecy. The second thing is, once they've been in captivity, was there going to be a restoration of Israel? So we have the first one, and the second point the Old Testament prophets are always talking about is a restoration. And the third point they talk often about is the kingdom of the Messiah. So we have judgment falling upon us. Will we be restored? And when will be the Messiah? 
Those are the themes that he says we can bring out of our study of the Old Testament prophecies. And therefore, you can then see how those play out uh, when we talk and study about Revelation. So, although they're separated by several hundred years, prophecies about the return of, from captivity, because there's prophecies about the return from, and the nation's political restoration, again, that's what prophecies are talking about, are woven together with prophecies about the kingdom of the Messiah. And so you have them coming in group. And when the Messiah would come, it's the restoration of man through Christ. That is what, that's how he reads into those prophecies. That it's not just the Messiah to rule over uh, Jerusalem, Israel. It's the Messiah to restore humankind to the spirituality that was supposed to be in the garden from the beginning. From the beginning. So by drawing on this latter realization that Christ's kingdom is the spiritualization, um, it's the spiritual restoration of man. The fall of Adam lost that spiritual position. Christ will bring that restoration to all human beings who seek it. It was knowledge of that that helped me open up to fulfillment eschatology. Because when I was reading scripture, before I knew, knew much about it, I was reading that things were spiritual now. Things are spiritual. And if we have a spiritual kingdom where Christ has had the victory over our spirit, then what does that have to do with our eschatology and the wrapping up of a material age? And so to see that Christ has had the victory and we're in that age that is spiritually experienced and not materially built, it led me to say, well, then I need to revisit what I'm doing in church, what I'm doing on this earth as a Christian, and what I'm looking forward to if it's a spiritual kingdom. And that's what led me. You can read about it in the, it's, uh, the End of Material Religion, that pamphlet we have. That's what led me to write it and to kind of compose that from Scripture because it seemed to me if Christ came to restore the spiritual nature of man, then, and that was the end of that age when he did it, we don't need to worry about all the rest of this stuff that we're doing. So getting back to the Old Testament, the gathering together and return from captivity in Scripture happened through Zerubbabel. I hope I'm saying it right. Zerubbabel. And uh, Zerubbabel is a type for Christ in the Old Testament, type for the Messiah. And he would gather Israel and lead them to spiritual Zion and the heavenly Jerusalem that we read about. So in Hosea chapter 1, verses 11, and uh, chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, listen to what is said. Sorry for my voice. It says in Hosea that the children of Judah and the children of Israel were gathered together and appointed themselves one head. And they shall come up out of the land, for the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, and without a prince, and without a sacrifice, and without an image, and without an ephod, and without a teraphim. Afterwards shall the children of Israel return. Now this is Hosea writing. David's long dead. Shall they return and seek the Lord their God, and David their king, and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. So there's a, a prophetic scripture in Hosea talking about the restoration and the coming of the Messiah for the nation of Israel. And there it says, David their king, that they shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. Well, where are they going to find David their king? So we know that's a type for Christ. So we have a prophecy there in Hosea 1.11 and, and uh, 3, 4, and 5, chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, that speaks to this day. In this example, the first part of the prophecy appears to have Zerubbabel in view. In its historical context, Zerubbabel was the one head, okay, that would lead captive Israel out of Assyrian and Babylonian captivity. I got a cough. Watch the sound, Seth. <coughs> 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 T 
$10,000 for the person who can find the one who gave me this cold. Uh, however, the prophecy in a fuller sense, because that was dealing again with them, looks beyond the return of captivity and to a Messiah, but it points to Israel being restored and gathered and Christ coming in as their head, as David their king. In other words, Zerubbabel is a type of Christ to come, gathered the captive home to the land of Canaan, and Christ would gather true Israel into a kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel. So we have the fulfillment there. Zerubbabel is also known in Persian name Sheshbazzar in Ezra 1.8. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, he led the first band of Jews, 42,360 of them, and a large number of uncounted servants who had returned from captivity at the close of 70 years of it. Zerubbabel leads them out. After their return in the second year, he built an altar and he laid the foundation of the temple on the ruins of what had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. That's found in Ezra 3. All through the work, he occupied a prominent place uh, insomuch that he was a descent from the line of David. That's Zerubbabel. So we know Christ the Messiah is going to fulfill that too. Another example from the Old Testament that we could read from, not but Ezekiel parts, is the Amos 9, 8 through 14. Listen to what it says. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom. Now, you're reading about it in the Old Testament times, which had application. Perhaps you could read it about in application with John the Baptist coming and saying the axe is at the root of the tree. Prepare yourselves for the kingdom is here. Repent. Uh, it's coming down. Jesus is on the way. And try to hear it in both those terms, Old Testament and New. Behold, the eyes of the Lord have come upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from off the face of the earth. Well, that's a Hebraism, because he didn't destroy the whole kingdom from the face of the earth. He, he left a remnant, saving that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, saith the Lord. For lo, I will command, and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations. Like as corn is sifted in a sieve, Yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David. Now that sounds like he's going to raise the body of David up to do it. That's not what it means. That is fallen and close up the breaches thereof. And I will raise up his ruins and I will build it in those days of, as in those days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all of the heathen, which are called by my name, saith the Lord, that doeth this. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him that soweth seed. And the mountains shall drop sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt. And I will bring again the captivity of my people of Israel, and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. Simmons points out that this prophecy is especially poignant because it inserts the prophecy of restoration of the Davidic throne of Christ. The Davidic throne of Christ, the tabernacle of David, it inserts it in that prophecy. Sitting between the prophecies of captivity, which was sifting Israel among the nations, and the restoration of Israel's sign. I will bring uh, captivity, I will bring my people out of captivity. So we have all three of those images going on here in that, test, in that uh, prophecy of Amos. We know that the raising up of the taber tabernacle of David looked ahead to Christ because of the Apostle James. The Apostle James, he said in the book of Acts, you may remember this from our study of it, Acts 15, 16 through 17, listen to what James said. And to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written, and he quotes, After this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down, and will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up. This is what was happening with the apostles in Jesus' church at that time. That the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles, 
upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Now, the reason these prophets lumped together the return from captivity and the coming of the Messiah in this way is that both were in Israel's future and the former was necessary for the latter to occur. The prophecies about Christ's birth and, 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 in Bethlehem and his flight into Egypt and his resurrection, being raised in Nazareth, rejection of Israel, death, burial, all those things, all required that the nation return from captivity. So we can see that when the nation comes out of captivity from Assyrian and Babylonian captivity as a nation, that is a sign, an indicator of God saying, I'm getting ready for the fulfillment of the Messiah to come because you have all been released. There's been a judgment upon you, that occurred. There's been a prophecy that you would come out of captivity, that occurred. And so when we get to the New Testament, we're ready for the Messiah to come and present himself. And now I've mentioned the imagery of Gog and Magog in Revelation is adapted from Ezekiel. <clears throat> like other prophets, what did Ezekiel write about? He wrote about guess what? The coming captivity. He wrote about the restoration of the Jews to the land, and he wrote about the coming of the Messiah's kingdom. And the first half of Ezekiel addresses the coming captivity and is laden with prophecies of uh, lamentation and wrath. The latter half is devoted to themes of the nation's restoration and the coming of the Messiah. We take what Ezekiel said and we apply it to the New Testament content, especially when we get to Revelation, and we can see that it both had place and application in Ezekiel's day, and it was a type and model for what would occur. I don't think it's exactly the same, but they were related. Ezekiel's most graphic portrayal of the return of captivity, most people read this a section of Ezekiel as um, a picture of the, of the resurrection. But the Valley of Dry Bones is really a portrayal of a restoration of a nation that has been scattered and put in bondage. The nation was in captivity. The 10 northern tribes had been carried away by the Assyrians. Judah had been carried away to Babylon. The temple was burned. The city lay in ruins, which is exactly what we're talking about here in Revelation, happening in, in Jerusalem again. It happened in Ezekiel's day. Ezekiel likened the nation to a defeated army whose bleached bones laid scattered across this vast plain. And the question for the Jews of the captivity was, does our nation have a future? Are we going to rise up again? Look what's happened to us because we've been put in Assyrian and Babylonian captivity. The answer was, why, yes, you're going to rise again. In fact, let me give you a great vision, Ezekiel. And it's going to be the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. So it would revive and come together in a resurrection of the nation, which was a picture and type of the resurrection of all men. Now you could say, well, this was a physical resurrection that we're going to read of in the, in the uh, Dry Bones illustration. But remember, Old Testament, everything was material, pointing to a spiritual uh, picture through Christ. So that doesn't give support for that idea of the physical. But let me read it, uh, 11 and 12, just two verses of that. Then Ezekiel says, he said unto me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. So when people say it's a great picture for resurrection, that's not what it is. It is a, the bones of the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried. Our hope is lost. We are cut off from our parts. We've been in captivity. Will we be restored, Lord? And will you send us the Messiah as promised? Therefore prophesy Ezekiel and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. That is not speaking of individuals being resurrected. It's speaking of the nation coming out of a death grave of captivity into a new restoration and a new life. <coughs> The prophecies of the dry bones will be fulfilled in the restoration of Israel to its land. Cyrus would allow the city to be rebuilt and the captives to return home. And this happened in the great migrations under three Old Testament leaders, Zerubbabel, 
Ezra, and Nehemiah. But Ezekiel's prophecy didn't stop with just their return to captivity. Like other Old Testament prophet, uh, prophecies and beyond, the return of captivity and a, and a restoration uh, was pointing to the spiritual restoration of all men through Christ. That's why verses 21 and 24 say, ready? Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whether they be gone, and will gather them on every side, ready? And David, my servant, shall be king over them. There's that line again. And David, my servant, shall be king over them. Well, that was not going to happen. That was not going to happen. David was not going to be king over them because David was not going to be physically present. So what's it talking about? That is a mention of Christ returning and reigning as a Messiah over the nation. So like Hosea's prophecy of David their king, David's a symbol for Christ and speaks of the restoration of the Davidic throne that had been usurped by Nebuchadnezzar and the Gentile powers that be. This is key. This is so important as I've all the stuff we've just said to this one topic of Gog and Magog. Christ would not sit upon the throne of David on earth. This is so important to understand. The Jews missed that and they put Jesus to death because he wasn't the Messiah they expected. He was never going to sit on a throne on earth. He was going to sit at the right hand of his father and reign over the spiritual kingdom from there. And so Peter made this abundantly clear in the first gospel sermon after, writing, after Christ's resurrection. He said in Acts chapter 2, verse 29 through 34, I'm going to read it to you. He says it before a large group, 3,000 plus, uh, well, probably more, of Jews gathered on the day of Pentecost. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David. So he's, he's pulling from this idea of the Messiah, the king coming from David. Will it be David's throne? Who's it going to be? How's someone going to rule on the throne of David? He says, he is both dead and buried. That's really important that Peter said that. So you guys are looking for a king to reign like David in David's seat on his throne here on earth. Wake up. David is dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, we know it's talking about Christ, according to the flesh, fruit of David's loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Messiah to sit on his throne. He seen this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell to corrupt, neither his flesh to see corruption. This Jesus, Peter says, has God raised up, whereof we are witnesses. Now comes the line where Peter puts Christ on his proper placement and proper throne. He says, therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted. So Peter, in that one sense, took all the Jews' expectations of a material Messiah to come after Israel had been released from captivity, after Israel was being restored, after they thought they were going to have a material Messiah on a throne and killed the one who was the real Messiah. Peter makes it clear, therefore, being on the right hand of God exalted, it shows them, whoa, we thought, he should be here. Wrong. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he says to himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand and make my uh, foes my footstool, which is a, a scripture we've talked about before. So Peter makes it plain that the prophecies of David, their king, spoke to the resurrection of Christ and his coronation in the heavenly kingdom, Jerusalem, where he would sit on a heavenly throne next to his father at the right hand of God. Premillennial hopes of Christ seated upon David's throne upon earth are empty and vain. They are vain and empty. They embody the very hope that led the Jews to crucify Jesus. Do you, got, you understand that? 
premillennial hope that Christ will be seated on the actual throne of David here on earth are empty, they're hollow. And they take on the same idea the Jews had of a material Messiah sitting here reigning over the earth because they read Revelation with material eyes. They looked for a national liberator, not a savior who would deliver from the bondage of sin and death. That was what Christ did. He came and released us from the bondage of sin and death, not this world. So when people are reading the book of Revelation with a newspaper in their hand and they're seeing historical events cycle and they're saying, look it, it's going to happen again, it's going to happen. Not again, they're just saying it's going to happen for the first time. They are doing the same thing the Jews did when they said, we're in captivity, we're going to be restored, where's our Messiah? They're looking for someone to come and sit on that earthly throne and to liberate us from everything that's going on on this earth. It's never been, the, it's never been in the plan from everything that I've read. So when Ezekiel and the prophets, speaking of David ruling over his people, we understand that in the futuristic prophetic sense, they're speaking of Christ and his church or his body, which is spiritual. That the church and that's, and Christ is reigning spiritually over sin and death and the church is reigning spiritually and we are salt and light spiritually on this earth. That's what they are speaking of. Now listen, Ezekiel's prophecies of the Valley of Dry Bones and David, my servant, occur in Ezekiel 37. And then after that, the prophecy of Gog and Magog occurs in verse 38 and 39. So Ezekiel gives us a chronology there. Now you could say, well, there's nothing to that and that may be true. But to just bring an argument to it, we first have this prophecy of Christ reigning in heaven on the throne next to God, his father. And then Ezekiel introduces us to the battle of Gog and Magog. So thus restored Israel under David Christ is the historical and chronological context of the prophecy about Gog and Magog. And I think I got that right. Something says you might want to reread that. So Ezekiel describes the great battle of the end time in terms of a pagan horde that invades Israel, a host so numerous they ascend like a swarm and a cloud that covers the land like grasshoppers and like we, what we just read in Revelation that John uh, pulls from. Glass of water and we're getting close. He writes, Ezekiel, And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshesh and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against you. O Gog, the chief prince of Meshesh and Tubal, and I will turn thee back and put hooks into thy jaws, and I will bring thee forth and all thy army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed with all sorts of armor, even a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. This is Ezekiel's take of the Old Testament situation. Listen, he says, Persia, Ethiopia, Libya with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer with all his bands, the house of Tugarma of the north quarters, and all his bands, and many people with thee, be thou prepared, and prepare, thy, uh, and prepare for thyself thou and all thy company that are assembled unto thee, and be thou a guard unto them. After many days thou shalt be visited. In the latter years thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword, and is gathered out of many people against the mountains of Israel, which has been always waste, but is brought forth out of the nations, and, shall and they shall dwell safely, all of them. Several points need to be made at this juncture about what I just read. First, Gog has set himself as an enemy of God and his people, and there is a historical account that the Lord wants to settle. There is a historical, but we have a time issue here. He says, later, I'm going to settle this with you. It's going to happen. When he says, after many days thou shalt be visited, 
there in Ezekiel, the prophecy indicates that God has abstained from vengeance upon these nations that are called Gog and Magog, which John says are the four corner nations of the earth. That God is going to expend his wrath upon them, but it's going to happen years from when Ezekiel first mentioned it. God's war against restored Israel was divinely permitted. It was ordained and would provide an occasion for judgment and vengeance against the people symbolized as Gog. Second, the invasion of God would occur in latter times. That's what Ezekiel says. This phrase speaks to the closing years of the end of the reign of sin and death, the latter days, unless you're a latter day saint and you think it's today, or unless you're a futurist and you think it's today, fulfilled then. This places Gog's attack upon restored Israel in the period immediately preceding the destruction of Jerusalem, which is the embodiment of the age of sin and death because of the law. And under the Mosaic age, uh, that is when it was all going to come down. Third, the description of Gog's territory mirrors that of the Roman Empire. Did you hear that? The description that Ezekiel gives us of Gog's territory mirrors the uh, area of the Roman Empire in that day. It doesn't mirror it now. For instance, Ethiopia and Libya were Rome's southwest boundary. Persia, beyond the Euphrates under the Caspian Sea, was its easternmost boundary. And the north quarters, coasting along the Black Sea and the Danube, into, unto the British Isles, were its northernmost holdings. Evidence that Ezekiel's description of Gog's territory is exactly what is provided by King Agrippa II's famous speech recorded by Josephus. In that, he says, this is found in Josephus Wars 2, quote, For all Euphrates is not sufficient boundary for them on the east side, nor the Danube on the north. For their southern limit, Libya has been searched over by them, as far as countries uninhabited, as is Cadiz on the limit, uh, their limit on the west, end quote. So what we have there is Josephus giving us a quotation from um, Agrippa II and saying, this is his description of the Roman Empire. And we can look at what the Roman Empire was at the time of 70 AD and see that it perfectly fits Ezekiel's description of uh, uh, what Gog and Magog are. And, and therefore we know that, that Today, it would be impossible for us to have Gog and Magog fall in those same geographic lines because the lines have all moved and been changed. So having established the time of Gog's attack and the extent of its history, it just, now we just have to ask, well, who was attacked? Who was being attacked? And Ezekiel describes the object of, God, of Gog's invasion by brought forth out of the nations in other words, restored Israel under David, which is to say the church under Christ, is under attack. And if Gog's territory answers to the Roman Empire, and the time of his attack upon the church preceded the destruction of Jerusalem, then what historical event did Ezekiel refer to? The battle of Gog and Magog is a symbol for the eschatological persecution of the saints by Nero, allowed by God for three and a half years, where hundreds of thousands of Christians were killed and allowed to die as martyrs. So I, that's the Gog and Magog story. I, 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 I don't think I need to go on anymore. That's how I see it. I think it makes great sense compared to all the other Gog and Magog accounts under the full or partial preterist view. Now, I know that there are uh, the, the Latter-day people who are saying, no, we're still waiting for all this to occur. I believe that they could see signs of that in the historical context, but I don't believe it fits in with the wrapping up of that age, which was Christ's return, which was the question he was asked by his apostles on the Olivet Mount. When will all these things be? When will you come? What is the sign of your coming? And when will be the end of this age of Judaism that we have lived under? And Jesus gives them 33 verses of description. And in the 34th says, and all this will happen within a 40-year period of time. 
Okay, questions, comments, insights. Ooh, doggy. Jethro, turn on that air. Nothing? Vanna? Okay. Let's pray. Lots of material, Lord. And uh, most important, let's help us. You know, we studied this morning and, and uh, the words of Paul. He says, we all have knowledge, but knowledge puffs up. Uh, but those who love God, uh, that we are builders. And so we just pray that as we learn these things, real good to know and good to consider and good to talk about and have our positions. But we pray that we will be, more importantly, people who love you first and therefore love each other second and that we will be equippers. We will be people who build. And if people, uh, others have ideas different than ours or we differ with each other, that we will have that building effort of love amongst ourselves. There's so much division in this world that in your body we need unity. So we pray for that unity. We study hard. We get into it deep, especially here in, in meat. But we pray that we'll have that unity of, of the faith, which is that you loved us so much, you gave us your only human son who came, he lived his life sinless, he gave up his life, died on a cross, shed his blood, rose on the third day, overcame sin and death, and ascended into the heavens. Lord, on this we place our faith and our trust, and we love as a result of it. So always let us cling to those principles, building on that foundation and any of the ancillary information will take its proper place. We pray for those who are struggling in the flesh, struggling in the spirit, who have difficulties with testimony, difficulties with family, uh, difficulties with sorrows, which come in so many forms in these days and every day. We pray for Diana, continued healing and peace, our sister. We pray for Carla, continued healing on her body. Annette, new treatments for new cancers, especially located in and around her spine. We pray for Paula, who had a TIA, or several TIAs, and is having difficulty with her health. And uh, we just pray your blessings upon her. She watches from home. We pray for Mike, with a recovery from a brain bleed and recovery from short-term memory, a recovery of short-term memory. We pray for Robert, uh, cancer of kidneys and upcoming surgery, as well as uh, chemo for lymphoma, uh, Diane, kidney stones and tomorrow's scope of those stones and Phyllis who has uh, recovery of her pancreas. We, uh, I pray for my dad who's in uh, uh, hospital care now for his ail failing health. My mom who's, uh, they seem to be going down together at the same time with her health. And Lord, I just pray you'll be with them. They've lived long, long lives and you'll just encourage them and strengthen them and comfort them and bring them your peace which is not of this world and help them to hear your voice at this stage of the game. Whoever else isn't on this that should be, we lift them up in our hearts and minds, praying for our viewers who are all around, who are watching from home, and uh, those who are here. In Jesus' name, amen. Take